Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's not just good for programming. It's also great for kids doing homework. It's great for reading, great for writing, anything that requires your concentration. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments at mtcb.pwop.com. That's mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1196. Recorded Tuesday, September 8th, 2015. Hey, it's time for Carl and Richard. I'm Carl. He's Richard. He talks. I listen. That's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing, buddy? I'm all right. You know, uh, we've done a lot of these now. So the stack of research is getting pretty deep. And uh, this this has been a show I have been avoiding. Yeah. Because it's a bear. It's one of the most complicated uh, bits. I've been reading a lot of mathematical papers. And it... I. Well, I, I hope you can simplify like you usually do for us. But. I hope so too. We'll find out because I'm so, you know, I'm, I had a couple of points in the, this particular process. I'm like, am I so far into this now that I don't speak English anymore? <laughs> it does seem like that. It does hey, get the, like that. If this stuff caused Einstein to scratch his head, who, you know, who are we? <laughs> exactly. To think we don't get it. There's definitely points where I didn't disagree with that. With, uh, there's a moment where I think Albert had a point when he said, God couldn't possibly have meant this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? I stumbled across one of Google's projects today. Oh, you did? This is Project Sunroof. Have you heard of this? I have not heard of Project Sunroof. That's an interesting name. I'm not going to give you a URL because, you know, just Google it. Okay. Google sunroof. I'm sure it's going to come up the first thing if you say sunroof in Google, right? Okay. So what they're doing is they're letting you plug in your address, and then it goes to Google Maps and combines that information with other databases and creates a personal analysis of how effective solar panels will be on your house. That's cool. Isn't that cool? And it totally makes sense that they would do that. They have all of this great... Uh, geographical data and, and mapping information. So they should be able to do that quite well. Yep. They can look at shadows that are cast by structures and trees, houses and stuff, and the possible sun conditions over the course of a year and historical weather and temperature and all that stuff. And it comes up with, you know, either, yeah, you should do solar. You'll save some money or no, nah, don't even bother. <laughs> at least, you know, and yeah. then, then it gives you details. But here's the catch. It's only in a couple places right now. The San Francisco Bay Area, Fresno, California, and greater Boston. So, Interesting. Yeah, and I guess it's just because that's where they have the data, right? Maybe, yeah. Or at least know what the installations are like and so yeah. forth. I mean, I'm very aware of the fact, especially around automated driving things, they've got incredibly detailed topographical data and so forth mm. from the Silicon Valley area. Mm. But they, then when you said Boston, 
And I'm like, well, Boston. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder what they have that makes that area more likely. Or maybe it's one of their challenge areas and they're going to expand it more. Very cool. It is very cool. And I'd like to, I can't wait to see this uh, continue. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I got, Richard. Who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off a of show 1169, the geek out we did on artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, lots and lots of comments on that, including things like, I've watched, listen to this episode three times now. Uh, <laughs> so obviously, you know, that was an interesting show for me too, because we were right on that edge of how philosophical we're we getting with this, how technological we're we getting sure. with this, because it's a tough topic. And Paul Michaels had a comment that not only resonated on that topic, but it resonates on this one around quantum computing as well, where he mm. said, a fascinating show and some interesting points made. I like the fact that you try to draw a line between intelligence and sentience, which are often lumped together. Yeah. I was particularly interested in the comments made about the frame of reference an emergent AI would have. If we did manage to create an actual sentient being, I imagine that a conversation with it would, by definition, not pass the Turing test. Yeah. Right? The Turing test being, you know, the best way to know if a computer is actually sentient or so the thing on the other end is sentient is if you can have a conversation with it and understand it. And he's saying it would or it wouldn't. Well, he thinks that it wouldn't because, as he says, as I understand it, it was never intended to deal with conscious or sentient beings, just computers with advanced interfaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, and it sort of gets to this idea that if just because you're sentient doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be conversational in the same way. That's right. Well, it's like if you think of people, right? You could be a genius and completely inward looking, you know, no, well, no we interface. We talk about all, all that autistic spectrum stuff, right? Yeah. Right. It's like that. So he now he dives into philosophy where he says, Wittgenstein, who was a philosopher, said that if a lion could speak, you wouldn't be able to understand what it was saying. Surely that goes double for being that has even less in common with us than a lion or a banana or even a plate of blancmange. (laughs) Such an entity having no emotions like fear, greed, no ambition other than what is given to it, and no facility or concept of feeling may decide to just continue to run the program it was originally given. Now, let's attack this sentence a little bit because... You don't know how this would actually come out. Certainly, that's the scenario that's been painted, right? That we we give an AI the ambition of, you know, getting low-cost stamps, and so it ends up turning the whole planet into stamps just to get more of them. Mm-hmm. You know, killing everything and everybody just to get more stamps. Like, that's that kind of, you only give it this ambition, and it takes it to the ultimate degree. Yeah. But I... I really buy the idea that the entity will be so different from us that you can't even presume about what its emotional or ambition reactions would be. And, you know, and this gets back to our point that this topic is just soaked in philosophy. Yes. Yeah. And if this was the case, how would you even know that you had created something sentient? Unless it tries to kill you. Right. Or more to the point, how do we know that we haven't already done it? (laughs) Okay. Mind blown, (laughs) Richard. Just another day talking to Richard Campbell. Yep, yep, just another day. Oh, man. So, I mean, these points of just this idea. Now, first off, and most importantly here, and I hope I made this point in that show, there is every evidence that that an emergent artificial intelligence is a fictional trope, Mm. not science. Hmm. Right? It's the stuff of movies and books. Mm. Normal physics tells us pretty clearly that the most likely thing to happen in an emergent situation when just giving a system to run is that the system breaks down. That is entropy. 
right? That's the expectation. The idea that we would put a bunch of stuff together and just let it run and it would become something more, that is incredibly unlikely, Hmm. right? The only place that you see that is in straight-up biology. Mm-hmm. You know, I put a seed in the dirt with the water and some sunshine, and I get a plant, mm-hmm. right? That is a system-resisting entropy, and is remarkably rare. The ch- the idea that we would build something ourselves that has non-entropic properties like that, just not that likely. I am not worried about emergent AI. Really, I'm not. Well, we have talked to people about genetic computing, which yeah. is self-modifying and you know, it has all the things that a seed has in it, you know, and as at different stages of its development, these little switches turn on and off. I mean, just how how genes moder- uh, moderate and make things come about. And it's interesting that when we do see emergent properties, because we've gone and modeled biology. Hmm. So an awful lot of time we're modeling systems that already exist and trying to create similar behaviors. There's just yeah. no guarantees that that's actually the way it's going to work. So I'm less concerned about an emergent AI as I am in intentionally built ones. And that's well, what we, we talked a lot about that in 1169. Yeah. And lest we revisit that, let's give him a mug. Yeah. Let's send you a mug, Paul. Thanks so much for stimulating conversation. And you'll see how this ties into quantum computing as well as we go along here. Uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. Well, Richard, let me confess my ignorance about quantum computing, and I'll tell you what I know. And you tell me how right or wrong I am. I'll tell you what I think I know. Okay. All right. First of all, uh, the term quantum is widely misused. I guess the popular usage of quantum, uh, like quantum leap or something like that, indicates or or, uh, denotes that it's something big, something huge, like a quantum leap in something. But, but, but quantum and quanta is the smallest measurable thing, right? right? So it's exactly the opposite of what you would think of when you say quantum leap. Now, the other thing that I know about, um, quantum mechanics is in quantum computing is that the, one of the, the, the biggest, um, applications, if we can get this right, has to do with uh, communications because of because of quantum entanglement where you have something that you act on over this part of the world and something in another part of the world actually gets the message and so so could so revolutionize communications that is about it i mean <laughs> honest to god well, and, and there's been some interesting papers talking about this idea that entanglement could not be used for communication because it's self-neutralizing um where that's a shame oh yeah. man a whole bunch of sci-fi just went down the more the sci-fi blows up it's a shame yeah. i mean there's a bunch of other science and these are other geekettes we could be doing that might address that particular issue in another way but don't count on quantum computing for that particular element uh one of the reasons i finally really focused in on this is is the nsa has recently come out with a sort of an admission that they they are no longer recommending their latest set of security requirements to organizations that are trying to protect their data because of quantum computing. They're afraid of quantum computing enough now that they're actually reformulating the way they want to recommend encryption uh, because it's it's close enough in their minds to actually be worth changing security approach. Does that mean what I think it means? That they're so worried of the power of a quantum computer, its computing power that the stuff that people are using to encrypt, which is essentially trying to stay ahead of computing power, right, 
is just completely a waste of time. Well, yes, that that that's the issue that we're up against, and the and the math around this. And again, we're, this can get very math heavy, and I'll try not to go too darkly into this. But when you talk about that schism between quantum being this huge leap and the quantum the, the the tiny tiny things related to atoms the leap part comes in the changes in the way that we do mathematical computation hmm. so one of and I'll I'll talk more about this but I'll, maybe I'm jumping a little ahead here but I want to address your question square on yeah one of the first really significant algorithms to be developed that showed the potential of quantum computing was Peter Shor's algorithm in 1994, known as Shor's algorithm, and it's a way for factoring integers. Okay. Now, factoring integers is a a huge thing done all of the time. Most of our encryption is built on the factoring of very large primes, 300-digit primes. When you think about protecting data, we use these primes as an encryption key. Mm. They're reliable and they're extremely hard to crack. We talk these talk about these lifetime of the universe problems. Given that you use classical computing to iterate through what you typically use a fast Fourier transformation, you have what they call an exponential problem. As the number of digits involved in the primes goes up, it gets exponentially more difficult. Right. So when you want to, you're figuring out, okay, how much harder is it to do a 10 digit problem versus a 11 digit problem? It's 10 to the 10th versus 10 to the 11th, and right? That's exponential time problems. And before, before we get into details, just to give you the big picture here, Shor's algorithm basically is trying to solve given an integer find its prime factors, right? right? Yeah. So that's, I mean, and that's the cornerstone of most of the uh, encryption that we're doing these days is figuring out those prime factors. And because it takes so long to figure them out, it's a good protection. If you use a long enough, a big enough set of primes and a big part of, in, of, in, of cryptology for a long time now has been finding larger and larger and larger primes, mm. When you apply quantum approaches, there's actually a concept called a quantum Fourier transform, hmm. which actually transforms amplitudes of quantum state rather than uh, rather than uh, tables of numbers in a fast Fourier transformation. And you turn that problem from an exponential time problem into a polynomial time problem. So instead of 10 to the nth, we're now n to the 10th. Uh, okay. Ooh. So how much of a big difference is this? Well, if n is 10... They're identical. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cause that's both 10 to the 10 to the 10 and 10 to the 10. Yeah. Right. When it's n is two, actually the exponential pro- pro- approach is faster. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But when it's n is 300, it's, or, you know, uh, a number with like 37 uh, numbers, an integer with 37 yeah. numbers or something. Exactly. Yeah. When those digits get big, say it's, it's n, it's, uh, n is equal to 37. The difference between a polynomial solution and an exponential t- solution is millions of times different. Gotcha. Billions of times different. So suddenly something that would literally take in the fastest of traditional computing solutions, the lifetime of the universe to solve. Yeah. Is done in minutes. All right, now there's one other related question I have here. What's a qubit? <laughs> <laughs> All right, and I'm, we're, let's go dive into this whole quantum mechanics thing because this is largely this is the discussions that Einstein and Eisenberg and Schrödinger. I mean, these were people, and they worked on this problem. Yeah. So it's been known since the 30s, 
but only because it was messing with their understanding of the atomic model. Okay. So they were the first to really sort of explore, you know, Niels Bohr's paper it was really the original paper of the idea that atoms have a nucleus and that there's electrons go around in shells and so forth. That's from the 20s. Mm. You know, it's just not that long ago, not even 100 years ago, we were first talking about the structures of atoms. Right. And so it was only when computers started to come into play that this whole idea of understanding what was going on in quantum mechanics really became interesting. Isn't that cool? It is. And it's, and it's, what I'm also seeing the deeper I study into this is parallels in the problems of classical computing and its development as there is to this computing. So if you go back, like today, every computer we've got made with semiconductors, almost exclusively silicon, right? right. We've talked about this, Moore's right. law and so forth yep. in great detail, but that's not how computers started out. Sure. You could jump all the way back to the late 1800s and Charles Babbage. Babbage. Right. And, and his mechanical machines. But even when you, when you talk about post World War II vacuum tubes and the stuff that Turing built. Right. Right. When he was, oddly enough, trying to solve cryptography problems. <laughs> right. I mean, it's really. A big problem. I mean, that's probably the biggest problem we have. Well, and certainly at the time. I mean, Turing was led to the concept of the Turing machine as he tried to figure out how to solve these cryptographic problems, and he needed a general-purpose computer, something that could have new rules plugged into it on a regular basis. He was doing it electromechanically, hmm. and so that really impaired the range of problems he had. Most electrical mechanical computers at that time weren't even really programmable. They solved a particular problem. So what I think I hear you saying is that quantum computing is just a natural extension of computing. But also that it's falling into the same set of problems. We haven't found our transistor yet mm. in quantum computing. Yeah. That to me is the biggest sort of insight is this recognition of, and even, and we're right now we're experimenting to figure out what that qubit actually is, what it looks like. And I can list off a half a dozen different ways right. that folks are trying to make those things. But that's where the problem is right now. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Ray Gun Pulse. You know about Raygun, that error in crash reporting software? Well, they've just launched Pulse. It's a real user monitoring product that gives you real-time performance data and user insights, letting you understand exactly what's happening when users interact with your software. Never be left guessing. Raygun provides you with the answers to your performance questions. Having found over 10 billion bugs in customer apps with their crash reporting product, Raygun now lets you understand application quality like no one else. Over 30,000 developers worldwide can't be wrong. Try it out today with a no-risk 30-day free trial. Check them out at raygun.io. All right, let me reel you back in for a little bit. What are we talking about when we mean a quantum computer? Is this something that is just so far beyond what we consider to be a powerful computer now? Is that what we're talking about? Well, the ones we've been able to make work, and again, think in terms of like electromechanical computers. So what we're doing is we are supercooling a handful of atoms, aligning them with photons so that they become quantum entangled, completely isolating them from the rest of the environment around it so that no vibration, no heat, no energy can touch them so that their entanglement states stay in place so that we're able to multiply three by five. I don't know what that means, though. Does that is that a, a means of 
multiplying computing power, or are we talking about memory, or what? Well, they're all really the kind of same things. What is a bit when it's in a CPU versus in memory versus on a hard drive? Right, I got you. So right. now we have storage just because the uh, we need larger um, larger amounts or larger capacities for everything that we have. Exactly. What's impressive about multiplying three by five is that you did it with five atoms. The fact that you have half a building's worth of equipment to get those five atoms in the right state to be able to do that computation, that's the problem. That's the engineering problem. I see. Okay, but without a doubt, we have proven the concept that we can do computation at a quantum level. Whether or not it's valuable, fast enough, or practical, those are still being figured out. Now, I do remember IBM's famous video where they had uh spelled out the logo IBM using atoms as pixels yes. and i think it was they were just electrons weren't they uh, no they were they were actual full atoms so yeah. i think they were even out of silicon but they, what they were doing was demonstrating the precision of their deposition techniques for building very small electronics and mm -hmm. IBM the what's interesting when you look at the companies that are really driving quantum computing their names you know mm -hmm. they're IBM they're Google mm -hmm. and they're Microsoft mm -hmm. Right. These are the guy, these are the companies that are pressing hard on this because it is kind of a big science problem mm. that directly impacts their businesses in a big way. And so they're pouring non-trivial chunks of money into making those things happen. And so just to, just to be absolutely sure that you've busted my bubble completely about quantum entanglement, there, you, you feel there is no way, and I guess scientists feel there is no way to do communications with quantum entanglement. There is a pretty good proof that the way that entanglement actually works won't allow that to happen. It violates the conservation of energy problem. So it's, but again, it's only math. And there's a whole other set of of approaches going on that as you dig deeper into what the current generation experimentation is going on in, in quantum behaviors, we're finding new things that may circumvent that issue as a whole. But the way that it stands right now, no. Hmm. But that's not the, you know, the interesting thing here is, Quantum entanglement, uh, you know, uh, quantum coherence or superposition, they're all part of this equation of what it takes to actually do computing in this area. Mm. And they're misunderstood. They're, they're more often more complicated than they need to be. Um, the reality is every atom, every fermion, that's every proton, neutron, electron, and so forth, yeah. uh, in the system has quantum behaviors. Quantum behavior is going on all the time. The problem is that they're very hard to measure and they get overwhelmed by so many actions going on at once. So in the space of what they call quantum information, we are dealing with this constant state of randomness. And you really want to be able to focus in on just if we only focus on a few atoms for a reason. Mm. It's much easier to measure what's going on. Mm -hmm. You want these atoms to stay in this uncertain state. Right, that superposition state where is it a one, is it a zero? No, it's somewhere in between. And in fact, you want to keep it in that state for as long as possible because as long as those qubits are in this superposition state, they can do computation for you. And a qubit is a quantum bit, right? Effectively a quantum bit. It can be a one or a zero and everything in between. In fact, it's all of those things at the same time. Yeah, see, this is where you lose me, buddy. <laughs> yeah, until it collapses its state. So imagine this idea that I'm going to load an expression of an algorithm, right? Okay. An, an equation into a set of qubits with them in the superposition state. So I don't know what their actual value is when I load them. 
Okay. And then they run for a certain amount of time until that state collapses. And that is then when I actually get my results. So you, you got to back up and then tell me, what does that mean? What does it mean when a qubit collapses? And, ha- and by the way, how can a bit be anything but one and zero? Well, this is where we now get into basics of quantum mechanics. Yeah. Right. That typically, and it, again, I, and I want to stress this because the, the research is now showing very clearly quantum behaviors go on all the time. They're just very hard to measure in the noise of everything else that's going on in atoms. Okay. It's only when we get into these extremely isolated states that we can easily measure quantum behavior. But when we get down to these, the, to these very pure behaviors, Matter behaves both as a wave and a particle. Right. And in its wave state, it, you don't know where that atom is. It's somewhere in a space. It has a probability of where it would be. Measuring it will alter it. Right. The observer right? effect. Yeah. The observer effect all ultimately locks it into place. Now, this is where that whole Schrodinger's cat thing comes in, where we don't know if the cat is alive or dead until we observe it. Right. Same thing here. The process of actually measuring it sets it in a place. So what's interesting about this problem, this concept is while it isn't being measured, while it is in isolation, it is capable of doing simultaneous computation. So if I take three qubits right now, when I measure them, they're either the three qubits are going to be one or a zero. And if you do your basic binary math, you know, there's going to be eight possible states that it could be in, mm-hmm. right? Right. From zero, zero, zero to one, one, one. Right. Once we measure it. But while it's unmeasured, they're in all of those states at once. And so effectively, they can test every combination simultaneously. So you're looking for an optimal value, whatever that value might be. Say it's the computation for three times five, which actually won't fit in the three qubits, but let's not talk about that. All right. When it, when, when I collapse the state to measure it, it's going to give me the best possible result. And it could do that in a very short amount of time effectively. Although speed is not a guarantee when it comes to quantum computation. So what is the guarantee? What is the reason that we're even Looking at quantum computers, you said, um, uh, so far, we don't know if it'll be fast. We don't know right. if it'll be accurate. Yes. So what's We the don't point? know if it'll be reliable. We're pretty sure it'll be expensive because it has been so far. <laughs> so what's the goal? Well, so the whole reason we started down this path is as we started to understand quantum mechanics. So you jump back to the 80s, and this is Richard Feynman, Yuri Manin, uh, David Deutsch. Like, these are the, the big thinkers in this space. They were trying to model quantum mechanics in classic computers of the 80s, stuff we used, even supercomputers at the time, right? right. Think about stuff like the Cray-2 and so on, and found this exponential computation problem. Right, that it was 10 to the end to compute these problems when they got to any scale. And that's when Feynman's paper, which is a fun read, really got into this idea of maybe we need a quantum computer to simulate quantum mechanics. And it's one of the problems I think quantum computing has as a whole is so much of it is focused on the science of quantum technology in general. But that was sort of the realization. I mean, you know, often we don't solve problems till we can really sort of see them. And this mm. was sort of the first problems they were dealing with is understanding interactions of atoms at a scale. Now, remember what they were working on at the time. They were trying to actually get to a place with this universal model, right? Yeah. And 
they couldn't make it work. The and grand they, unification they, theory. Yeah, they, and they, they and they were tr- and they were burying the computers of the day with the scope of the scope of the problem. Now, the big deal about Shor's algorithm, and this is David Deutsch that really pulled this out in in eighty five, was that that was sort of the first problem factoring integers that he showed evidence could be computed substantially faster with quantum computing than it could be with classical computing, and that that sort of kicked off the beginning of that arms race that this that there's a possibility here of doing something great okay all right i mean i i say okay like i understand but i'm really <laughs> just barely hanging on man i'm i'm with you and it's it, it is as crazy as you think i mean the important part to think about a qubit is it is a computational device the same way a bit is a computational device it's right. a place to store information and for equations to be sp- expressed against it it has the ability to stand in these multiple states which more than anything means it's a much more complicated thing to program sure yeah exactly there's a there's a big discussion about whether these things are even effectively programmable and whether they're going to solve meaningful problems. Right. And that was my initial confusion there, because you say these things are only in a state when you look at them. So right. what are you doing in the meantime? Are you are you um, telling them to modify themselves? Are they reading some sort of program? In, in theory, they're executing your program. The problem is you can't really have a progress bar now, can you? Yes, yeah, certainly not. But <laughs> I guess that would require measurement. But I guess it just is so supposedly instantaneous or maybe not. It's we not really actually. Know. Yeah. And when they've, in, the, in the cases where they've actually run them. You know, how do you know when it's done? It's a really interesting problem. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess it's th- done when you look at it. <laughs> well, it is effectively. But you know, the, what I find interesting about this description of pro- and problem is these are very similar to the descriptions they were having about classical computers in the 50s and the 60s. That they were special application devices that were only going to solve a very rare set of problems that would never be relevant to anyone else. You and I did a keynote not that long ago, where we were cra- comparing the Cray 2 to the iPhone 4S. And the iPad, yeah. Yeah, the same computational capabilities. Right. But one was solving modeling nuclear explosions. So how many of those do we need? Two? Yeah. Right? Versus, hey, playing Candy Crush. That's right. <laughs> so right now, when you think of them in those terms and at that scale, Quantum computing seems very odd, specialized, and so forth. But just get the idea that we've been here before, and once you can get good at this stuff and it's reliable, a whole bunch of other opportunities open up. Yeah. So the potential for quantum computing could well be huge. At the same time, I'm the first guy to be sick of the hype. I have read a lot of papers right. digging through all of this stuff, and I I skip over the parts about how much this is going to change the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right. How did you do it? Well, and the fact is that there doesn't seem to be a lot of practical application yet. It, it does right. seem to be more theoretical. Has anybody built a quantum computer? Well, several people have said they have. And several, and lots of, most, most of the, there's quantum computers and there's quantum computers. One of the side effects of them being so many different approaches to this is that there's an argument over what quantum computing can actually be. Right. Right. Much less what are the problems they're trying to solve. So, I mean, we have this set of problems that we think quantum computing can do a good job on. Shor's algorithm I've talked about a lot because it's about factoring integration, uh, factoring integers. There's also Grover's algorithm, which is really good at searching unsorted data. Mm. Uh, and, 
the mathematically, again, most of the stuff is all mathematical because they can't actually benchmark it in a sure. usable way yet. It's supposed to have a square root advantage, which means the larger the set of data, the more dramatic the advantage a, a, a Grover's algorithm would have over a classical sort of information. Oh, man. Well, you know what time it is now? Uh, must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to observe how many people are about to laugh. Damn, I thought it was a much bigger number. <laughs> well, I know I collapsed. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was meta funny right there. There you go. <laughs> I've been telling quantum jokes to myself all day. <laughs> I think I understand that. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today... Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant.net solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Mark Mitchell. Hi, congratulations, Mark. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely. A round of applause for Mark. He just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express. A big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors, and every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member. Haven't asked you in a long time, Richard. What would you do with five grand? Uh, well, I can't buy a quantum computer. They're a whole bunch more money than that. Yeah, and they don't really do anything. Well, yeah. <laughs> Actually, you could probably sell one to somebody, I'm sure. Uh, it's been done. Yeah. yeah, there's definitely possibilities there. I'm still scouting for the perfect 4K monitor. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'm going to need to spend five grand on it, but I would. Yeah. Uh, one thing I've come to appreciate is that anything under 30 inches diagonal is just too small. Right. For 4K, you'll end up scaling everything anyway. So what's the point? You want to come in at somewhere between, uh, somewhere in the 120 DPI range. And that means like a 34 inch at least. There's a couple of companies making 40 inch. Yeah. Uh, I just 4Ks. saw a 40 inch 4K monitor somewhere for like 800 bucks. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's one of those ones that triggers my that can't be good yeah. flag. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know that and the forty's big. Oh man, that's big. <laughs> <laughs> but tempting, very tempting. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I might buy the rack mount version of the Presonus AI board. Thirty. Oh, you like that? Yeah, that's which is device. great. Because you take it out to a gig, but it's big. You know, is that kind of money? Uh, yeah, I don't know how much it is. Uh, the, the the board itself is only three thousand, so it's amazing. Right, only, yeah. Well, I mean, too. Similar boards are ten, twelve. Sure. Yeah. So they're they're a deal for what they are. They're but a it's steal. Not an expensive thing. Yeah, yeah. All right. So people have supposedly made them. What kind of hardware is out there, if any? Well. So a lot of the original designs were very much laboratory experiments. So they were chilling individual atoms down with liquid helium temperature down to like one Kelvin and using magnetic resonance interference to maneuver them and, and low energy photons create this thing called 
electron liquids Ooh. to actually it's just it's right at the edge of what's possible it's all hot, super cold super complex technology and that's why it's so unstable is if anything goes wrong any the anything interferes with those atoms they they become decoherent and you no longer have a quantum computer hmm. uh and there's lots of variations on that core idea of ways to trap individual atoms and the more you have trapped like that, because each atom basically represents a qubit, the more you have, the more likely they are to interfere with each other. So they've only been really able to build qubits of that style up to three, four, five, I think seven a couple of times. And then they decohere because they start to interfere with each other. You think about all of that cooling, all of that measuring, all of those magnetic fields, it's hard to get them work together. Yeah. One of the more interesting designs in that space is the squid design or the superconducting quantum interference device. Now they're mixing in superconductors with the equation as well. Not just super cold, but actually creating a superconducting ring, which has a Josephine junction in it, which is basically a sort of bump in the loop so that they can actually control the flow. The idea is that you're, you're keeping charges traveling around inside of this ring and that actually can describe the state. But they have sort of the same problem. They, these rings can be made quite small. I almost envision them like, remember old core memory? What Old core memory? Remember core memory? Those little the little graphite cores with the wires going through it before? Oh, yeah. Had, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, when I see the descriptions of squids and pictures and things, I think that kind of technology. Hmm. But again, immersed in liquid helium and, and they interfere with each other. Like it's very challenging to make that, to make that work. So the uh, there were some of the most advanced devices being built right now, but they're still working at only a handful of qubits. And we're trying to get to big numbers of qubits. There's this belief that if we could get a stable, reliable 30-qubit quantum computer, that would come in somewhere in comparable performance levels to 10 teraflops. Jeez. Remember that the difference between exponential time and polynomial time in mathematics is that once you get much above an N of 10, rapidly, this polynomial time has a huge advantage. So at 30, it's millions of times faster to do polynomial time. Wow. And that's what the quantum computer sort of opens up to. I see. Now, if you said, all right, I've got an unlimited budget, go buy me a quantum computer today. Like, who's got a quantum computer on the shelf? It's probably CERN. Not a research lab or anything like that. It's actually a company here in Vancouver, in Burnaby, called D-Wave. No kidding. So D-Wave's been manufacturing these computers for the past few years. But you got to be really clear. There's quantum and then there's quantum. So the D-Wave computer is what they call an adiabatic quantum computer. It uses a technology called quantum annealing. Okay, now quantum annealing is a, a larger concept of using collapsing quantum structures to do computation, and adiabatic is a particular class of that. So the idea is that it's good at solving optimization problems. In fact, really the way to think about this is this is a dedicated computer the way Turing's bomb computer for, so, for, for, uh, solving the, um, enigma, uh, mm -hmm encryption problem was, right? That mm -hmm. was a dedicated computer for one particular type of problem. This is very much what these D-Wave machines have been like. And they've made models recently as big as a 1,000 qubits, but they haven't been able to get performance advantages that people would expect from quantum computing. There's been a lot of criticism. In fact, it's gotten really 
ugly in my mind. Yeah, I was just reading about this as you were talking about it. It uh, looks like they sold one to Lockheed Martin. Yep. And then a whole bunch of academics just sort of poo-pooed it. Poo-pooed it. And then Google bought it. Yeah. Google bought, bought a 512-bit version of, or qubit version and of it. And this is only 2011. Yeah. This is all relatively recently in the past few years. What's mm. interesting is the side effect of Google getting involved with D-Wave is Google is now starting to build their own version of these machines. It almost reminds me of when, you know, Google saw the iPhone and went, oh, crap, <laughs> and started building their own version of the phone. Yeah. The uh, Google's now really pulled into this uh, largely because of the effects of the D-Wave. Uh, the problem with quantum annealing, and they, I mean, it has, they have done some demonstrations for solving complex problems like protein folding. Mm. So in a protein folding problem, you're trying to find the most efficient way to, to fold, connect amino acids together. Right. If you get it right, you know, it's a lot less energy. And this is what nature does automatically. Protein folding is very normal. That when you don't get normal protein folding, you get illnesses yeah. like Parkinson's, right? Right. So I know about this because I have a friend who's a scientist and I hear about these things. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's interesting about what D-Wave did in the case of something like protein folding, this particular annealing approach, you're essentially saying, well, here, okay, here is the set of, of possible folds. You randomly pick one of them and then you start comparing it with other ones and finding what they call a lower energy state or a, a simpler solution. You test over and over and over again. That sounds like a binary search algorithm. Yes, except a little ran more random than that, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But you are iterating through it. Now, what's interesting about that approach is at any given moment, if you collapse the function, you have the lowest energy state solution available to you. Mm -hmm. Is it really the lowest? No, it's as low as you found right. so far. So far. And, but it does find relatively quickly. And in reality... Uh, in reading the paper on them doing this particular set of tests with protein folding, generally speaking, the computer failed. Like the, the, the something went wrong and collapsed the state on its own rather than it ever got to any result. But it was still minutes of runtime. So here's what I don't understand. And, and I mean, there's a lot I don't understand. Get me, don't get me wrong here, but I'm looking at this picture and this is on Wikipedia quantum computing page of the D wave chip. Yep. And it looks like a microprocessor. It does, doesn't it? I mean, aren't we talking about like different mechanical things here other than what can be accessed with little traces and wires and stuff? Well, we still need traces and wires because we still need to charge it. We still need to stabilize it. We still need to measure it. Mm. Mm. But it is their qubits, while a trade secret, are very much this idea of a quantum well of little points of energy that are stable and they're able to get into a stable state and then run them without them affecting each other. I but gotcha. They are dealing with environmental problems. Yeah, they must have a lot of isolation in terms of vibration and temperature and all of that stuff. Absolutely. And they're still supercooling it. There's still liquid helium involved. It's not like it's going to fit on your desktop anytime soon. But that brings nope. me to my next question, which is uh, somebody has to have imagination here. Yep. And, you know, to be able to imagine what you know, where this could possibly take us. And I haven't heard that yet. Well, and I, and be honest, I'm avoiding a lot of it because so much of it is so speculative. This might solve AI. This could take on problems for new materials. Like all of these things are possible. I, I don't, I don't even mean that. I mean, like, how does, is there any theory or anything about how it can get fast and how it can get um, effective and more reliable? Like those kinds of things are sort of the foundations of, of what computing is, 
based on, right? Well, it wasn't at the beginning, you know, and that's the thing is we're back at the part where we, you know, what made the transistor actually possible and the semiconductor actually possible was the material science to build really pure silicon. Right. And we're still working on that problem. We can't make reliable transistors yet. And you're asking us to get candy crusher. Right. But I guess you're, you're saying in Babbage's time, you know, they'd already figured out mechanically how to do solve logic problems. They hadn't really. I mean, they never actually built it, and it, there was some evidence that it wouldn't have run reliably. It was going to need constant oiling and so yeah, forth. Yeah, Like, you, what you've done is done the math and said this is theoretically possible. Gotcha. But until you actually build it and run it, same problem. And I think this is this issue that we have with quantum computing right now. We have all of this theory. We have a little too much hype so that it's getting rather distracting. Yeah. And so a lot of the best work has been done very quietly. And an example of this is the efforts going on inside of topological quantum computing. Topological. Topological. So we talked about quantum annealing. Let's talk about topological quantum, which has its critics. You'll never guess who's one of the drivers on this. I'm going to say Apple. It's Microsoft. Okay. Craig Mundy and a guy named Michael Friedman, they created a group called the Station Q, Q for Quantum, back in 2004. Hmm. And one of their big goals was to focus on general purpose in qubits. Okay. Now, they built, they worked for years on different ideas in that particular space. And, but it wasn't until 2012 with a breakthrough at Delft University in the Netherlands, a guy named Leo Kuhoven actually came up with an interesting particle. So everything I've described to you about the problems around annealing and the quantum well approaches and so forth all come to the same thing, which is the atoms you're using to measure for quantum computing interact with other things right? right, that interfere with the quantum state. So the idea in topological quantum was to go after particles that aren't particularly interactive. And one of these particles was postulated to exist back in 1937. A physicist named Ettor Majorana described a thing called the Majorana particle. He's, he said, he, this is, he did the math for this and said, this might exist. It was the idea that- they call that them quasi-particles? They're not quasi-particles, really. They are fermions. So they do okay. follow sort of key rules around some things. But the big thing here is you're able to split an electron. It still has the behavior of electron. Now you have a left-handed Majorana and a right-handed Majorana who don't interact with each other. But if they touch each other, they will annihilate into non-existence. Yikes. Very interesting. Interesting. They are dangerous. They are their own antiparticles. Yeah. But they don't interact with much which gives them a strength. If you can actually hold them stably and get them quantumly entangled into that superposition state, they're very unlikely to decohere. But remember, these were theoretical particles, but we've had really a good run with particles in the past few years. And so in 2012, Leo actually built a device that could produce Majorana particles on a fairly routine basis. He used nanowires of indium antimonide okay. chilled with liquid helium. There's that... Darn liquid helium again. On the rocks. And a contraption involving superconducting electrodes and non-conducting electrodes. With a twist of lime. And he was able to get consistent measurements around these particular particles. Now, this is interesting enough that just this month, in September of 2015, Intel dropped 50 million his way. Ah, man. So There must be something to this. 
<laughs> well, there's money going in, right? And there are interesting, smart people working on this particular problem. But they haven't built anything yet, yeah. really. They're still working on the core qubit. So their argument is, you guys are playing with vacuum tubes and having all of that heat and instability problem that they had back in the 50s. We're going to work on a transistor, something a little more stable and reliable and so forth. The transistor being a metaphor for the next, you know, unit yeah, of Yeah, and computing. maybe it's this... Majorana particle is the perfect mm. thing, but it's not the only one being worked on. Oh, man. Anions and fermions and bosons. Oh, my. <laughs> There's a whole class of uh, quantum experimentation going on in the photonic space, too. So using photons to actually manipulate into quantum superposition. Those would be light waves slash particles. Right. And they're more tends towards waves. So yeah. recently, there was a discovery of something called the wheel fermion. These are masses particles, but they do carry charge. They act like electrons, but they tend not to discharge very easily. So they have very minimal backscatter. It's interesting to think about this stuff in the context of future electronics. These would not have any excess heat. Now, it's all well and fine to define a cool fermion and give it a name, but how do you actually make it? Well, lo and behold, in recent, in the past year, they've been making these tantalum arsenide crystals with what is called a double gyrode photonic crystal structure. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. That basically when you pass energy into it, it spits out these left and right handed fermions. So it's wow. in some ways a lot like the Majorana particles. Huh. Wow. Okay. And, and I only bring this up because that really speaks to how much we're in the infancy of this process. Nine. We're still trying to figure out, do you make it out of silicon? Do you make it out of gallium arsenide? Like, what materials are we using? How do we actually make the transistor? And every, every so often, an organization grabs some implementation and tries to build a larger machine around it and has problems. And just to put some perspective in this, a Tor Majorana, or a Torre, who he he talked about these fermions, these Majorana fermions in 1937. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Long time ago. Yeah, but he didn't. He wasn't able to make them. His whole story he was just really bizarre. Hypothetical. Yeah, it was all purely hypothetical. And this is, you know, we've talked about this a few times. This idea of how much is engineering trying to be explained by science, and how much is it science postulating a possibility that engineering discovers? Mm. You know, the Majorana was postulated. Right you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago. And now we're just starting to be able to actually make them. It's crazy. And they might have behavior we actually want. And it sort of leads us to another show in my catalog, which is uh, talking about the Large Hadron Collider. Yep. You know, after it did the Higgs boson, they actually shut it down, have turned up the power. You know, they've increased the, the power of the device because they want to go study, start studying supersymmetry. And a lot of these technologies around photonic quantum have to do with being able to deal with these more unusual particles that have different sets of interactions but still have quantum behavior. Yeah, I mean, we should do just a, a sort of a primer on particles and waves. You know, what is a boson anyway? <laughs> there's a lot There's a lot to know in the space. I just think it's really interesting to think in terms of we're, we're barely able to understand the particles we're working with, and we're trying to do com computation with them. Yeah. So it's, it's not surprising to me that we have this goofball state where you're building a machine, and then you doesn't run. Right. Or it doesn't run as fast as you thought it would. there's so many I mean, missing pieces. Well, and, you know, part of this is 
the science is pretty raw mm. and the, the technology is right at the edge of what is possible. We don't fully understand it. And so sometimes we're surprised at the results we actually get. The danger here is falling into the cold fusion hole. Sure. That at some point, and it, I think D-Wave presses right up against this with their yep. quantum annealing approaches, is that you've got people attacking them overall. And it's like, if you even say anything about quantum annealing, then you're wrong. Mm. Uh, people need to get results. And, you know, and pretty soon somebody's going to have an MCAT that's like a quantum computer and it's going to be complete snake oil and everybody will fall for it. Right, well, quite possibly. I mean, that's one of the arguments is, is, are the D wave machines actually MCATs? Mm. We don't really know. We know they've done so. I, I find it fascinating. They've done calculations successfully, but you didn't know if it's actually quantum involved. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's really? like the MCAT. It produces heat, but we don't really know why. We don't really know why. Right. Well, and, or at least we're skeptical as yeah. to why. Uh, because it wasn't fast enough. But remember that the speed estimates are being done by mathematicians, mm. not by material scientists. So the Hadron Collider. Once they found the Higgs boson, you say they shut it down. Does it have any other use? Yes. What else can it do? Well, it, it is a machine. What you're talking about here is a kind of super microscope. The ability to see the smallest uh, and uh, particles uh, in the universe, stuff we don't even understand yet. But there's been, as they've continued to study the results of the runs they've had, they found other things like pentaquarks. Oh, I heard about so, that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, one of the reasons they shut it down is that they collected enough data from the initial set of runs that they were needed to study it. They just got to stop for a while. You know, the same way that the new, Hor the new horizon yeah. spacecraft is going to be downloading data about year. Pluto yeah. for a year. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> right. And that's not, that's just getting that's it. Just that's just not getting even it, figuring right. it out. Right. Yeah. We have, we have sort of, you know, armchair, uh, observers here is just sort of have this idea that, Oh, you flew by Pluto? What? What do we know? You know, it's like, yeah, we just got a couple of pictures. That's it. Yeah, we've got, we need a little time now little to actually time. figure out what we saw and what we've done and so forth. Yeah. And so it is with a lot of this material science mm -hmm. and a lot of this high energy physics uh, science. What's interesting is this idea that we're getting better at producing some of these more unusual fermions without actually using real high energy physics like the LHR depends on. All right. Right. Where they're colliding literally colliding anti-protons, like anti-matter together yeah. to create the the kinds of fragmentations they want to get these measurements. And here they are doing it with these uh, cool double gyroed photonic crystals. So, All right. So if we could summarize quantum computing geek out experience, let's uh, say that, yes, this is really important. It's mostly theoretical. Yep. Some people try to make these things. We don't really know whether they work or whether they don't work or how. And oh, they're not working the way they expected. There's a lot of hype. We didn't even talk about what the hype is because we're just quite frankly a little disgusted by it. Tired of Tired it. Tired of it, maybe. And uh, we should not uh, write it off. No. We should be I'm, watching this. Just, there's no way, there was no way in the 1950s looking at ENIAC mm. to protect the iPad. Yeah, right. Right? They, it's just, it's so far out of realms but they know they're going in the right direction. They don't. They know they're trying stuff, right? This might not be the right way to do this. Yeah, okay, but they'll find out and then take a turn. But I mean, yeah, it's worth it's, studying is what it's worth studying is what I'm saying. I hope so. Yeah. I think they're still experimenting with a lot of different things. I think that there is 
some real dangers in what they're doing in terms of poisoning the well for funding and exploration in this mm. space. Mm. I'm kind of glad, you know, what makes me, there's a few things that made me happy. One is seeing companies like IBM, Microsoft, and Google heavily involved. Yeah. A, they got deep pockets. Yep. B, they don't spend foolishly. Right. They put money into things they think are important and they spend well in that space. I like that the NSA is nervous about this. Yep. Right. That they're actually p- changing their behavior on the prospect. That's very interesting. What do they know that we don't know? Mm. That uh, we may be closer than we think, that, than, than some people think in this particular space. So there's a lot going on. Uh, there's no certainty around any of it. Mm. Uh, it's, it isn't going to impact the way you write software anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, I would say that our environment right now, cloud computing lends itself well to dealing with these gigantic computers. Mm-hmm. A few, you know, you back up 20 years ago, nobody would even consider building a machine like this because it was very much a personal computing world. Mm. And why would I want a big machine like that? Right. But suddenly we're back in a space where we have a handful of companies. Oddly enough, they're companies like IBM, Google, and Microsoft who have places where you could put really large, high-performance computers. You know what it reminds me? It reminds me of back when I was in junior high school, which is middle school for most people. And I had a, a teacher, a math teacher, who said, we're on the verge of a revolution in personal computers. And this, so this is 1979, 1980, something like that. And you might think of them as something that's like a luxury or a toy now, but I guarantee you, in very shortly, and I don't know how long, this is what this guy says, you will not only you know, need one, but you're, you won't be able to get by without one. And I just thought to myself, well, what does that mean? You know, a big calculator, you know, because that's the, that's what I had, you know, that was my experience of electronics that were smart was calculators. So I'm like, Oh, something to do my, my calculate my taxes or whatever it is, you know, and I just couldn't get it. Like, you know, because uh, I didn't have enough information about the possibilities to have that vision. So, you know, that's what's frustrating about quantum computing is that, you know, while while there's, I guess there's a lot of hype and a lot of vision and, you know, very fast and very efficient and ridiculous computers, we, we don't really know what those applications will are. And we're still talking about the problems we're having trouble solving with the technology we have today, right. rather than the whole new class of problems that are probably surface. Yep. And you think about it, it, classical computing, per se, uh, isn't all that interesting. It isn't until everything around it, like the internet, right. came along yeah. that you got to this ubiquitous computing where the average 12-year-old with an iPhone has access to more information than the President of the United States did in the 60s. Yeah, that's pretty you know, amazing if you think of it. That's a pretty fundamental change. And that, you know, not to put a too fine of a point on this, getting that point to that point with quantum computing could represent a quantum leap. Yeah. in the way humans operate. In the popular sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, Richard. Great talking to you as always. Always fun. And uh, please, uh, Rich, comments. Do we need to dive back into this? Is an area we left out? Are there other topics you want to go after? We're here to answer questions, so happy to be a part of it. And you can always tweet us. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the end.